Thanks for joining us on Stand Strong in the Word podcast with author, speaker, and worldview expert, Jason Jimenez. Stand Strong in the Word podcast is devoted to walking listeners through the Bible in a fresh and powerful way. We pray your spirit is nourished as you gain new perspectives and a renewed appreciation for God's Word. Now, here's Jason Jimenez. What's up, my friends? Jason Menes here. So glad to be with you guys here on Stand Strong in the Word podcast. Now, if you've been with us for quite some time, you know for the past few years, matter of fact, that's how this podcast got started. We've been going through a study, a chronological study, that is, of the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and looking extensively into the background and understanding the culture and why Jesus did what he did as best we can, looking at the parables, looking at his healings, looking at him casting out demons, looking at his him challenging not just the disciples and helping them grow in their faith, but also rebuking the religious leaders and, of course, in the upper room, promising them that the Holy Spirit will come, the Comforter, and he must go in order for the Comforter to come. And then, of course, fast forward after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, you have 40-day span And at the very end, and that's where we're going to be picking things up now, as we continue our study now, we're going to be jumping in the book of Acts, which again, acts as a transition, a bridge from what happened in the gospels to understanding how the early church got started. And of course you can't have a church without the power of the Holy Spirit. And so that's what we're going to be seeing on today's podcast. Now, as we enter into Acts chapter one, we're going to be seeing the promise and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, remember The disciples had a lot of questions, but they were at this point in time obedient to listen to Jesus in his resurrected body before he ascends because he told them, stay in Jerusalem until the Holy Spirit comes. And that's exactly what they did. And this is transformative because this changes the whole landscape of everything. The Holy Spirit is going to come in a way that the third person, the Trinity, has never come. And so now as we look at the book of Acts, remember, Luke wrote part one. He wrote the gospel of Luke, giving an account of Jesus. And it was a beautiful uh, letter, if you will, that he wrote for Theophilus, but is more of an account uh, a biographical way. Remember, in the first century, especially as a Jewish writer, they did things a little bit different than what we do in the Western world. But he wanted to give Theophilus and he wanted to give the early church and the people that, of course, surrounded him in the community as as many more Christians were populating different districts and taking over in, in, in some regards, in some respect, not just synagogues, but also into people's homes and other places of worship. So they had that later to come. Now in part two, he writes Acts again to share with Theophilus and the early church. This is how things got started. And I want to give you guys an account that's accurate enough so we not just have it for our records, but that it continues to deepen our understanding and appreciation of what Christ is doing through the apostles. And of course, as the apostles started to die off or be martyred, uh, particularly being martyred, We know at this period of time, Paul is still alive, but this is about AD 61, so he just has a few years left before he's beheaded. And so Luke writes these chapters, if you will, that we're going to be looking at to explore these individuals. Like, for example, Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle, one of the greatest conversion stories that we have up to this point has probably been Peter. And of course, when you look at the new, the Old Testament, you have many examples from Moses being called prior to that being Abraham. And of course, how God used David and how God used Elijah, etc. And so now we're going to see 
close to that, that type of conversion story with Saul of Tarsus, who becomes Paul the Apostle. So let's dive in and to understand uh, this particular passage as we look at Acts chapter 1, verses 1 through 26. So if you have a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 1. We're going to read verses 1 through 4. And it says here, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Now, here's a couple things as we as we are, again, looking at this theme of the book of Acts, which is all about the Holy Spirit. It's not about Paul. It's not about even the apostles. It is about the power of the Holy Spirit who comes upon these broken men and women and uses them to establish and spread the church. Now, as I mentioned earlier, it's important to understand Acts as a bridge because it introduces us not just the particular acts of the Holy Spirit through people, but how they are inspired by the Holy Spirit. Of course, it's based on 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 20, 21, and 2 Timothy 3, 14 through 16, by the Holy Spirit to write these, um, these writings, these letters that we see throughout the New Testament. But it's also a map. It shows us how things got spread throughout the Roman Empire. Acts also is a book that transitions God's active work with the Jews to performing an incredible work through the establishment of the universal church. I like what F.F. Bruce wrote in his commentary on the book of Acts. He says, but it is Luke that we have to thank for the coherent record of Paul's apostolic activity. Without Acts, we should be incalculably poorer, even with it. There is much in Paul's letters that we have difficulty in understanding how much more there would be if we had no book of Acts. So you can definitely see the importance of Acts. Now, I'm hoping that you'll take more time beyond our podcast to go deeper into the book of Acts. If you've never read it all the way through, there's 28 chapters. It could take you, depending on how fast you read, maybe up to two hours to really pour through it. So I encourage you to do that. But let me give you just a quick little outline of the book of Acts. Number one is we see from Acts chapter one all the way to chapter eight, verse three, is God using the early disciples who are now apostles to spread the gospel to Jerusalemites. So we see the gospel primarily within this time frame, focusing in on Jerusalem. Remember, this is the heart of the city. This is the holy city. This is where the temple is. This is where Jesus proclaimed himself to be Messiah as he entered into Jerusalem on Passover. This is where they took him out of the city to crucify him. And so we see a lot of engagement in evangelism that breaks out in the heart of Jerusalem. Number two, in Acts chapter 8, verses 4, all the way to chapter 12, verse 25, we see Judea and Samaria, we see they start receiving the gospel. And thanks to people like Philip in Acts chapter 8, God uses him in a mighty way. Remember, he was one of the deacons that was um, brought in by the apostles appointed to take care of a lot of the needs that were happening as the church continued to grow new converts. And the apostles need to focus on prayer 
and, you know, understanding the scriptures and teaching the scriptures and doctrine. And so they raise up these men. We know Stephen, of course, in Acts chapter seven was martyred. And because of that, in many ways, I believe the anointing of Philip grew even more. He was emboldened and God started to use him to spread the gospel beyond Jerusalem. And of course, in chapters 13, all the way to the end of the book of Acts, we see the gospel spreading even to the ends of the world. And so it, it is a magnificent book. So I pray that you'll continue to join me each week as we put out this podcast every Wednesday. And now the key verse, and I'm sure you're familiar of, of Acts chapter one, verse eight, and this is the key that breaks the whole book down. And this is what Acts 1.8 says. Notice here that Luke is recording the words of Jesus when he said, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So there is a key verse to the book of Acts. So as I read chapter one, verses one through five, let's break down a bit of the commentary when we see here in the first introduction is the record of Jesus Christ. Now notice this phrase when he said in the first book of Theophilus, as I mentioned earlier, the former book was Luke, which of course contained the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of Christ. And now Luke picks things up in part two which is the book of Acts, to continue this narrative, to continue this story. Now, Theophilus literally just means dear to God and was likely to be a wealthy figure who held a prominent position and funded Luke's efforts. Uh, One commentary puts this, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning that you may know with certainty the things you have been taught, saying according to this approach, Luke's goal was to record the spread of the gospel message from Jerusalem to Judea based on Luke 1, verse 3 and 4, and to the ends of the earth. Now, Barclay writes this in his commentary, quote, Luke's great aim was to show the expansion of Christianity to show how that religion, which began in a little corner of Jerusalem, had in a little more than 30 years reached Rome, end quote. So, This explains the transition from a Jewish ministry to a Gentile one and from Peter to Paul. In addition, when you look at the book of Acts, this view suits the historical outlook. When you look at Acts chapter one, verse one in Luke chapter one, one through four, when when you look at the prologue of Luke one, one through four, it, you see this this, this historical narrative that's fitting to people like Herodotus and Thucydides and, and Polypius. They're, they're people who took account. And when you look at some of their writings and you look at Luke's, it's very similar. So it's quite clear that Paul, or excuse me, that Luke was writing a history in both of his books, unlike any other person. Now, Luke, as we know, when you look extensively through Luke, and the book of Acts, is a first-rate historian based on his works. He was an eyewitness who wrote what he witnessed. He was a contemporary of Paul. He was an investigator. He was an interviewer of other eyewitnesses and followers of Christ. He published a biography of Christ and a record of the early church and apostles within 25 to 30 years after the ascension of Christ. Now, I make a note here because this is important as you're kind of unpacking these things 
in, in terms of historiography. While arguments from silence are not conclusive, it is perhaps significant that the book of Acts contains no allusion to events that happened after the close of Paul's two-year imprisonment in Rome. Example, when you look at the burning of Rome, uh, the persecution of the Christians there in AD 64, and the martyrdom of Peter and Paul, possibly roughly 65 to 67 AD, and of course the the destruction of of Jerusalem in AD 70. So when you look at all of these significant events and knowing that Luke was writing an historical account from Luke to book of Acts, I believe if he was writing after these events, he would have put them in there. And when we see in the book, of Acts towards the end in chapter 28, we see that Paul remains before he can appeal to Caesar. He's still alive and imprisoned, but he's able to have guests and still have his parchments and do some writing. So that's significant. This is an early account, early AD 60, 61. So that's important. I notice when you look at verse two, he says, until the day when he was taken up, of course, that is Jesus meaning the ascension to the Father, according to Luke chapter 24, verse 51. And after Jesus gave this command through the power of the Holy Spirit to the apostles, whom he had chosen, that word is significant in Greek. It means to select, to prefer. So John uses this phrase taken up several times, um, or excuse me, Luke does. And and also in, in, in the gospel of John, he mentions it in chapter 6, chapter 13, chapter 16, chapter 17, and chapter 20. So this is a phrase which is significant because I believe that Luke is also looking at the Gospel of John and seeing certain phrases that he is injecting and putting in there, particularly because John deals with a Christological perspective, I mean the divine claims of Jesus Christ as a son of God. And so Luke here, he is one of the only writers though who, who mentions the, the ascension at the end of his book, or is the only one I should say. Uh, because he wanted to tie in the significance of what it meant at this point in time that literally Jesus was physically departing the earth and the Holy Spirit would physically come into the world. And it, because here in Acts chapter 1, verse 2, and then also 9 through 11, as we're going to see in a minute, he brings it up again. So it's a, it's a bridge itself how he ends the gospel in Luke chapter 24 with the ascension. And then he picks things up again in the Ascension. But remember, as he's writing it, yes, I believe that Luke was compiling some of this stuff as he was a companion and traveler with Paul. He's recording a lot of things. But I believe at some point, probably in the mid-50s to late-50s, and of course when it comes out in about 80, 60, 61, Luke is referring back. He's recalling these events and looking back at a lot of his writings to to formulate this particular book. So it's important to note how he ends Luke and how he begins the the book of Acts. Now notice he references the third person, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit was to empower. The Holy Spirit was to guide not just Jesus on earth while he was here, but now to move directly and personally and the lives of the apostles as they start the early church. We saw the Holy Spirit guiding Jesus in Matthew 4, verse 1. We see um, the Holy Spirit moving on him in Luke chapter 3, verse 22, and chapter 4, verse 14, and, chap- and verse 18. So this is significant, this transition now from how the Holy Spirit was moving on Jesus to now how the Holy Spirit's going to be moving on the disciples. Verse 3 says, He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. This is an interesting Greek word. It just literally means 
demonstrable evidence, demonstrable evidence, okay? And this this is what Luke is doing. He is putting together an account that you can test if you want to. And he says he's he appeared to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So after Jesus rose from the dead, he spent 40 days, based on what Luke tells us here, uh, laying out the evidence of his deity, validating his ministry as Messiah from the standpoint of the Old Testament and expanding on the kingdom of God to come, literally talking about the millennial kingdom. Now, you know, when you always look back and you look at the road to Emmaus in Luke 24, you think, you know, that had been great when he was expounding to uh, Cleopas and his companion from the law to the present and how Jesus fulfilled prophecy. I think of the 40 days here and wonder what were some of the things that Jesus had taught them as he validated his ministry, as he was now sharing with them in his post-mortem and his resurrected body, how he, the Messiah, fulfilled the scripture and then, of course, pouring into them one last time before he was going to say farewell. Now, verse 4 says, And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me. This is important as well, my friends, because John the Baptist was the first to prophesy of the Holy Spirit to come. If you go back to Matthew chapter 3, verse 11, Mark chapter 1, verse 8, Luke 3, verse 16, John 1, 33, you will see that John the Baptist was talking about the power of the Holy Spirit that's about to come on the disciples, I believe, in the upper room, that they, the same room that they were at when Jesus had the last Passover meal with them, the night in which he was betrayed. The disciples are there in that same room. Jesus said in John 14, 26, John 15, 26 through 27, John 16, 7 through 15, about the gift of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit would come upon them in a mighty, powerful way. Now, verse 5, though, when you go back to verse 5 here, And it says here, excuse me, I lost my place there. It says here, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So what is he mentioning here? Why does Luke put this here? That John baptized with water, even though John was the one that introduced the power of the Holy Spirit. What do you think John was meaning by this? Well, for example... Water in the Old Testament, remember, was often an analogy used by the prophets to refer to God's Spirit. We see this in Isaiah 44, verse 3, and Ezekiel 39, verse 39. So this term, baptized with the Holy Spirit, what Luke is referencing, and again, these are the words of Jesus. He's recording here in the book of Acts, in the beginning, the words of Jesus. He's saying this will be fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. So in one sense, the Holy Spirit's going to come upon them. But in another sense, now God's going to use a man particularly named Peter to share the gospel, to set the record straight, if you will, publicly, as never taken place up to this point. And we're going to see many souls, thousands of people come to Christ. So this was a phrase used by John the Baptist regarding the ministry of Jesus. By the way, as a side note, I, I believe this is very significant. When Luke was giving... This historical account, I believe that he was going all the way back, not just with the prophets, but that he was also looking particularly at, at John the Baptist because of these three different things that I'm mentioning right now about the Holy Spirit that comes from John the Baptist. 
And so John used this phrase. He baptized, of course, people in his ministry. He baptizes Jesus in Matthew 3, verse 11, Luke 3, 16. And as I mentioned, John 1, about the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit comes upon Jesus. So John the Baptist, he's get to see the foreshadowing of this. And so this was the official start of the earthly church that we would be baptized with the Holy Spirit, meaning people will be converted as we call Christians today. Now, remember in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, Paul would later write in the late 50s, for we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. So according to what Luke is saying here, based on what John the Baptist was saying, and according to 1 Corinthians 12, verse 13, the Holy Spirit joins all the believers in the body of Christ because we're indwelt. And that's called regeneration in Titus chapter 3, verse 5 and following. You cannot be regenerated. You cannot go from death to life without the power of the Holy Spirit dwelling within you. Let me read to you what the New King James Version Study Bible says regarding this phrase, shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. It says the passive tense of the verb indicates that baptism doesn't not depend upon our efforts to obtain the promise, but upon the Lord's will. The simple future tense demonstrates that there is no uncertainty or doubt in the promise. The Greek word for baptize means to immerse or to dip. It also connotes being identified with someone or something. Spirit baptism means we have been placed in spiritual union with one another and the body of Jesus Christ, the church. And again, that's all based on 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So you see the significance of what we understand the baptism of the Holy Spirit to be. And that is a foreshadowing of what was going to about to come in the upper room with the disciples and clearly what we see to come in the early church. So now let's jump into Acts chapter one, verses six through eight. Here it says, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. So here now is the commissioning of Christ in Acts chapter 1, 6 through 8. Notice they were, they were filled with angst when they came together. That's what it means in the Greek. So they're very nervous they had been obviously nervous and scared for quite some time, but emotionally they were distraught because they knew something significant was, was about to happen. So that's why they asked the question, Lord, will you at this time restore? And literally means, will you change back to previous state, the kingdom of Israel? So will you restore things to its original state? So this is a natural interpretation of all that has taken place at this point. Okay, you have come back to life. You came back. And are you going to restore, like you've been restored, if you will, again, not that he was a fallen sinful man, but he was a reflecting what resurrected body we will have. So they naturally were thinking that he was just going to restore everything. Again, as a Jew, they're thinking of Ezekiel 36, 36 through 37, about the dry bones, the prophecy there, Joel chapter two, verse 28, 29, and Zechariah 12, verse 10. So you, so when you take the Jewish scriptures in context of what's occurring right now, you can understand why they were asking that question. Now, the NIV cultural background study Bible puts it like this, quote, a central aspect of ancient Jewish hope was the restoration of Israel, which generally included the return of the lost tribes 
gathering of the exiles, restoration of the house of David, and the restoration of the temple. Jesus' disciples may have shared all these hopes, end quote. So now here in verse 7, it says, He said to them, it is not for you to know times. It literally just means it's not for you to know the duration of time. Or notice he says seasons, meaning even the particular dates that the Father has fixed by his own authority. So here in verse 7, many Jews believe that God would adjust his coming restoration while others attempted to predict his return. However, Jesus affirms it is fixed as God has made it to be. And they will know once it happens. For example, Paul would later write in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 1, Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. End quote. So you're not to fret. You're not to be worried or concerned. He says, matter of fact, what you should be focused on right now, even us as Christians today, is walking in step with the power of the Holy Spirit, the Bible says in Galatians chapter 5, verses 22 through 25. Notice Jesus says in response, he says now, verse 8, but you will receive power. Now, of course, we know that word power is in the Greek dunamis, which we get the word dynamite. It literally means the virtue of an ability to have the capacity. This is significant, my friends, because... Our bodies in and of itself cannot contain, if you will, the third person of the Trinity. The only reason why we can is because of the resurrection of Jesus. And the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit raised him from the dead. And the, whole, and the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead, we're told in Romans 8.11, lies within us. And so this power, he says, will come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So here Jesus in verse 8 calls his disciples witnesses. That means you are a remnant and you are called out ecclesia. So that's that word witness or a remnant or the called out ones is the church. So we the church is you know locally and globally speaking, of course, we were the universal church when you believe Christ is your Lord and Savior and dwell by the power of the Holy Spirit. But you are the ecclesia. You are people who are called out. You are people who are witnesses. You are a remnant, right, of people preaching the gospel to the earth. That's an Old Testament phrase, by the way, that comes from Isaiah 49, verse 6. So the gospel is to spread, notice, geographically and ethnically. When you go back in the same account we have in Matthew chapter 28, when it says that you will baptize in my name, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, right, that you'll make disciples of what? every nation, all ethnic groups. And the power that Jesus says here is going to be this dynamite power of activity that you're going to have this capacity that you have not up to this point. You're going to be able to teach. You're going to be able to perform miracles. You're going to write inspired works and you're going to grow the church of Christ. So now turn to verse nine through 11 of Acts chapter one. And it says here, and when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Isn't that amazing passage? I love 
those verses, those three verses. Notice here in verse 9, when he was looking up and was lifted into the clouds, he was taken up and he he and lost their sight. At what point of elevation that they lost sight of Jesus, I don't know. But this is amazing because if you go back to John 16, verse 28, Jesus fulfilled these words. He says, I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I'm leaving the world and going to the Father. If you go back to John chapter 1, when you talk about Jesus being the Logos, he talked about him being eternal. And that's exactly what John traces in the upper room, the night in which he's betrayed. And then you fast forward and he says, I'm going to go back to be with my Father. And so at this point of the ascension, Jesus fulfills these very words that he told his disciples. And verse 10, and while they were gazing into heaven and went, as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Remember how many angels were there in the empty tomb? Two angels. And they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you in heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is a significant verse, my friends. We know that verse eight is the key verse of the book of Acts. Verse 11 is extraordinary because the ascension of Christ not only brought the empowering of the Holy Spirit that would usher a period of the church where you and I as witnesses, remember, will be the salt and light of the earth. Notice as we await the rapture of the church. So Jesus is leaving and that's in that setting, in that, in that literal position of the disciples looking up. And what are we supposed to be doing? Fast forward 2000 years later. Galatians 3 verses 1 through 3, we are to look up because we're told in Zechariah 14 verse 4 and Revelation 1 7, based on the rapture that I believe is recorded for us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 12 and following, the rapture being caught up. Remember, he uses the phrase taken up. So that is the Greek word harpazo or rapturo that we get. And think about having a magnet and you have a magnet that's floating past metal, metal nails, if you will, and you get it close enough to where it pulls them up it snatches them up. That's what's going to happen. And so the, the, the angels here say to, to, to us, as we're reading it right now, he will come in the same manner as you saw him go into heaven. Isn't that amazing? So now we look at number five here, prayer and supplication, prayer and supplication. So turn to Acts chapter one, verses 15 through 19. Acts 1, 15 through 19. Actually, I'm going to jump to verse 12 here where it says, and then they returned to Jerusalem from the mountain called Olivet. Sorry, I got those messed up there. Let me just read this. Verse 12, then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey, about 3,000 feet. And Jesus we're told here, will he'll return and stand as king on the Mount of Olives, according to Zechariah 14, verse 4. So not only will he return, but he will come back at the same location. Now, we don't know the exact mountaintop, if you will, the, 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 amount, the, the actual ridge. But when they return to Jerusalem, the Mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, we don't know exactly where they're at, but we know, according to Scripture, that Jesus is going to return and establish his kingdom here, this, this location somewhere, according to Zechariah 14, verse 4. So that's interesting. Now, verse 13 says, And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room. I believe, again, this is the Passover room. 
where they were staying, and Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew, Matthew, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James. So I love this because Luke provides an identical list as he wrote in Luke chapter 6, 13 through 16, of course, minus one person, of course, who committed suicide, and that is Judas Iscariot. And they were told in verse 14, and all these with one accord, that just literally means they had the same mind. So they were on the same page together, taking in everything. Now notice how they've already emotionally, spiritually progressed uh, even phys- physiologically from when Jesus was killed and they all abandoned him and eventually they're, t- they're together and slowly but surely one after the other, they're witnessing the resurrection of Jesus Christ and hearing of many conversion stories that are taking place. One of the significant ones, of course, is Thomas in John chapter 20. But now fast forward after the ascension, he tells them to, to stay in Jerusalem until the helper, the Holy Spirit comes. They're all gathered of course, except for Judas, they're of the same mind. They're together. Notice because they're devoted in prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. So the disciples begin to pray in the name of Jesus. Remember, Jesus said that in the upper room again, John 14, 13 through 14. And they're praying in his name as a family, as they're anticipating the coming of the Holy Spirit. We're told here, according to Luke's account, that the women were there this is something Luke did frequently in Luke 8, 2 through 3, Luke 8, um, excuse me, Luke 23, verse 49 and verse 55 and Luke 24, 1 through, through, through 11. There's, there's many accounts where Luke is mentioning women because they were very significant. It wasn't just the 12, it's soon to be Matthias that we're going to see after verse 15, which of course I was about to jump into and read earlier. But it was also his brothers. Notice that um, one in 1 Corinthians 9 verse 5, I want to mention, this is important to note because I believe some of these women were not just the followers of Jesus, like for example, Mary Magdalene or someone like that, but also some of the wives of the apostles according to 1 Corinthians 9 verse 5. And as I mentioned here, as Luke says here, his brothers were there. Remember, Jesus, he had four brothers. He had his brothers, uh, James, Judas, Joseph, and Simon. Now, they didn't always believe in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, and John chapter 7, verses 1 through 9. But here we're told the women are here. Some of the wives of the apostles are with him in the upper room. We're now told that Mary, the mother of Jesus, is there with her sons, James, Judas, Joseph, and Simon. I believe if it wasn't all of their sons, Luke, again, giving his meticulous account, he probably would have mentioned just the ones that were there. But by the fact by, by the, the fact that he mentions his brothers, I believe all four of them were there. All right, so now let's go to Acts chapter 1, 15 through 19. And it says here, in those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Verse 18, now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all of his bowels gushed out 
And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, a kaldama, that is, filled of blood. Verse 20, For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put together, or excuse me, they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabas, who is also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, you who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots from them, for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. All right, so there is a lot there in verses 15 through 26. Notice, let's go back to verse 16 where it says, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled. And the Greek carries a, the, the, the word of divine necessity. So here we see God's hand in directing this. And Peter stands before the 120 followers of Christ, if you go to 1 Corinthians 15 verse 6, and is instructed by the prophetic word to elect a new apostle. Okay, so notice the qualifications that they had to have. Two explanations now are given, by the way, uh, as to what happened exactly to Judas. Why, of course, he was being replaced. We know that he committed suicide. But notice the descriptiveness that's given here now in the book of Acts that the Gospels don't. So here are two explanations that I can give you about um, this, this, this wording of Judas's bowels bursting open after his hanging. One is the rope had broken, possibly. And the swollen body burst open on impact when it fell to the ground, okay? So yes, he died by hanging, but then just describing when they came upon his body, the condition of his body. Second, possibly his body was discovered and taken off the tree and tossed over into Gehenna before the Sabbath, uh, which was which was sometimes happened. They would that's how they would get rid of uh, dead carcasses, uh, especially before Sabbath, so that they wouldn't defile themselves. Either way, Luke's mentioning of this does not contradict Matthew's account in in chapter twenty seven verse five. Now, notice this phrase here: allotted his share in this ministry. So Judas was never truly a follower of Jesus Christ. He participated in activities. He had relationships with some of the disciples. But he did not believe in Jesus as his personal Savior, Matthew one twenty one, John one fourteen, John three thirty six. Those verses apply to him. Yes, just because he was designated as a disciple does not mean that he was a believer in Jesus. Instead, Judas is called what? He's referred to in John 17 verse 12 as the son of perdition. This was a prophecy that was fulfilled according to Psalm 41 verse 9. So Judas was not a follower. So Matthias, this divine necessity, was called up to replace him. Now notice here when Peter was talking about in verse 9, it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem 
about this field what that Judas had purchased, known as the field of blood. He refers to two royal and imprecatory psalms in Psalm 69 verse 25 and Psalm 109 verse 8. And he points to David's prophetic reference to Judas's betrayal and his destruction. So at the same time, you see that Peter has this understanding of, of what Judas's betrayal meant. It wasn't just fulfilling prophecy, but it was talking about the destruction. And so they wanted to be done with that, obviously. Of course, he he was judged for what he did. And Peter and the rest of the followers of Jesus were ensuring that they were going to replace that position with a man who was not just a witness, but again, someone who was going to be filled with the Holy Spirit to continue to do the work that God had called him to do. Now, verse 21, so one of the men uh, had a, who had accompanied us during all the time, so he gives these, these requirements, beginning from the baptism of John to the day when we was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to the resurrection. So being an eyewitness of actual events, John, his baptism, baptismal uh, ministry, I should say, uh, the teachings and healings of Jesus, the resurrection, and also the ascension of Jesus. Because remember, it wasn't just the 11 that were there on the Mount of Olives when he ascended to heaven. It was the disciples, many people who were there present. And we're also told in one of the gospels that there were some who didn't believe. They weren't sure, but they were there. So a lot of people were surrounding Jesus as they saw him ascend into heaven. So filling the spot was a sign of restoration to come. That's another thing that's so significant. It wasn't just literally replacing that apostleship, but it was also a sign of restoration to come. A reminder that Judas took his life. He was unrepentant. Peter sinned and he, against Jesus, he denied him three different times, but yet he was restored. So this is a sacred understanding that, that preserving the 12 tribes of Israel is very significant according to Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. And then we're told in verse 23, and they put forward to Joseph called Barsabas, which means the son of the Sabbath, who's also called Justice, which means the just one, and Matthias. And they prayed. They prayed to the Lord. And of course, we are told here that the, they casted lots for them and the lot fell on Matthias and it was numbered with the 11 apostles. Now, here's what we need to understand because a lot of times people think, you know, what's up with these casting lots and things like that? What's going on here? Well, notice it says here, one, as I mentioned earlier, divine necessity. God is moving upon them. They're surrendered to the Lord. They're waiting for the Holy Spirit. And notice verse 24, and they prayed. And they said to you, Lord, you know the hearts of all. So when they cast the lots, the disciples, they looked to God first for direction on who he appointed as the 12th apostle. Now the disciples were, they probably, what this means, casting lots, after they prayed, they probably wrote the names of these two men, Justice and Matthias, on stones. And they probably placed it in a jar, shook it up, and whichever name came rolling out, that first um, rollout was a sign that this was, again, by divine necessity, God's hand of directing this. Now, this action was not practiced in the New Testament, but it was mentioned briefly in Proverbs 16, verse 33. Um, again, that's probably the best interpretation that I can come up with. Maybe there's something else that's significant there, but this is what I've studied. But the point is, it's not a practice that they continue to do moving forward. We don't see Paul clearly doing it to choose some of his companions or elders or who would take over the church. So it's important for us to understand that as well. So my friends, that's it. That This is the promise and power of the Holy Spirit here in Acts chapter 1, 
1 through 26. So I hope that the first chapter uh, made sense to you. As you could tell now, we're going, we're, we're taking the podcast to video. We're making it more readily available for people. So if you continue to listen to the audio, you can go to standstrongministries.org, iTunes, Google Play, other platforms, Stitcher that you use. We are there uh, so that uh, you can not just listen, but we pray that you would share the ministry and, uh, and the impact that this is happening in your life. And now we'll be uploading these things on YouTube. So I pray that you continue to watch, you continue to listen. And I do encourage you to continue to pray for us, continue to pray for clarity, continue to pray um, that this podcast, this ministry would continue to enter not into not just homes, but areas where the gospel, the word of God is restricted. You know, I wish that I had the time to travel in more places, but just like you, you know, we're limited to what we can do, but God isn't. And so one of the ways that we're able to impact the world is through this ministry. So if you find this ministry encouraging, if, if you're growing in your faith, I pray that you would continue to support us, pray for us. And if you will, prayerfully consider going to Stand Strong Ministries, click on donate, and you can give whatever amount that you feel led to give to help this ministry continue to thrive. So thank you, my friends, for watching this. And until next time, keep standing strong, my friends. For more information on Jason Jimenez and Stand Strong Ministries, visit us at standstrongministries.org. Thank you for listening, and keep standing strong in the Word of God.